If you brought a Bible with you this morning, let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. While you're doing that, let me express how grateful I am to Jason Eamon for filling in for me last week. Uh, we had a very mild uh, form of the flu, and uh, I was able to call Jason on Saturday night, and uh, he said, look, uh, the Gospel of John, we're in there in Sunday school, I think that's like Jason's book, if I had to guess. Uh, where he would be most ready, it would be from John. So I'm grateful for his leading our congregation last week in my absence while I stayed at home uh, hating not uh, being able to be here. Uh, I think at some point in the middle of the afternoon, my wife was very tired of hearing what I thought about Hebrews chapter 8. So uh, glad to be back this morning. Uh, if we have a big idea that emerges, I think, out of Hebrews chapter 8 this morning, and we're going to try to cover almost the entirety of that chapter, it would be something like this. In the person of Jesus, we have been given all that we need to worship God. In the person of Jesus, we have been given all that we need to worship God. Let me go ahead and start by reading just <coughs> excuse me, the first seven verses of Hebrews chapter 8. We'll make a few observations here. Starting in verse 1, now the point in what we are saying is this. This is following an extended application of Jesus as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7. Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer, speaking of Jesus. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. And you may want to just... Keep a note there in your minds when we're speaking of the law, we're speaking of the content of the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And thinking back to those middle chapters of Exodus, you may recall that Moses was taken atop Mount Sinai, and apparently while there, given some vision of the heavenly places, the realm in which there is unadulterated worship to God. Verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant that he mediates is better better. If there was one word that we were using to summarize the entirety of our study in Hebrews, it is the word better, the superiority of Jesus in Hebrews. He's a better priest. He's a better revealer of the heart and mind of God. He's a better sacrifice. He mediates a better covenant. Better, 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 better. Right? He mediates a better covenant since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. What we have in Jesus is better because in the person of Jesus, we have been given all that we need to worship. Let me draw your attention first to the very beginning of verse 5. First 10 words there. 
He says of this heavenly temple versus the earthly temple or tent. There are heavenly instruments, there are earthly instruments, there are heavenly priests, there's an earthly cast of priests. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Grasping what our author is talking about there is essential to understanding not only chapter 8, but really the entirety of the book of Hebrews. There is a heavenly realm. This is where God is. This is the place of his throne. This is the place of pure and perfect worship. This is where our author says that Christ is as the great high priest who mediates a better covenant. This is the temple place of God. And then here on earth, we have things like those things, but things that our author describes as shadow instruments, not the real deal. And in fact, this chasm between where God is in his holiness and where we are in our unrighteousness is expanded voluminously in drawing that contrast between all of the great and pure and righteous things in heaven and all of their shadow elements down here on earth. And one of the arguments that emerges from the book of Hebrews, and specifically here in chapter 8, is that we only have shadows of those heavenly things. We never got near to heavenly worship as we were stuck with earthly instruments. But God's mercy has been extended to us in the person of Christ, who fully equips us to worship in the way that God requires because he gives us all that we need to worship him. We'll flesh that over the next few minutes. Maybe we could start with just a, a little illustration here. Okay? What do you think of the most obnoxious thing in the world to clean up? Maybe more annoying than anything else, right? That's it for me right there uh, because you could uh, just cover yourself in duct tape and roll on the floor and you're still going to miss these things. But here we go. What I was doing with neon green paper, I don't remember. It may not have been me. I've got a couple of kids who come to the office occasionally. And, but here we have, and I've gotten it all over the dais there, our little circle of friends here. Those are really obnoxious, aren't they? Now, I'm not drawing a direct analogy to sin, but I'm sure you can draw your own conclusions there. These things are about as annoying as the world can get. We're having a parade or whoever. There we go. Now, uh, I asked my kids, Annabelle, 11, Grace, 6, I love you. I need your help. Could you please go get the vacuum cleaner and help me clean this up? They could, at some point, go into their playroom and find this gem. Right? <laughs> You're familiar with this. Now, there's a button on here and at some juncture, you could have pushed the button and this thing would swirl and the lights would light up. It doesn't do that anymore because at some point, there are just some toys that don't get their batteries replaced. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those toys, right? Uh, Dad just has a really hard time replacing the batteries on this one. Um, as an aside here, my brother-in-law, Graham, gives us toys like this or did when the girls were little all the time. And now he has kids and they're younger than my kids and they get toys like this. I buy the, the, the best batteries on the planet, and they get put in there, and I take just a little dot of Gorilla Glue and put it over the hole where the screw goes in, 
So we are going to get at least one life's worth of batteries out of that. And that's the little present that I give to myself every Christmas. <laughs> I ask the kids, go get your vacuum cleaner. Help Dad clean up all of this mess. Now, now this looks like a vacuum cleaner, right? It makes sounds. It makes noises. It rolls back and forth. But you know what it doesn't do? It doesn't clean up anything. It doesn't vacuum. It's just, it teaches you about vacuuming. It, it, it teaches you what it would look like if you were using a real vacuum cleaner, but it doesn't effectually do anything, right? In fact, I'm convinced that, that it, some of that glitter gets out. It makes it worse. I think that's how that thing actually operates. Now, under the Old Covenant, we've been given a temple, uh, beautiful, uh, grand, maybe one of the most incredible things in the ancient world. But it was still made, as the author of Hebrews says, by human hands. It cannot compare to the heavenly temple. We've been given sacrifices, thousands of animals, millions throughout the centuries, I'm sure, spilling untold gallons of blood on the altar that achieved absolutely zero remission for any of our sins. We were given priests, some of them very, very good, and some of them very, very poor, but none of them perfect. We were given a covenant, a covenant that taught us what righteousness was that couldn't ultimately change who we are. We had shadows of what real worship looked like, but before Christ we did not have the real tools we needed to worship as we had been called and made to worship. In Christ, we have all that we need to worship. In the person, we have been given everything necessary to glorify our God in the way that he requires. Throughout our study of Hebrews, and I've included this in your notes, our author has highlighted the necessity of four elements that are essential to the worship of God. Now, uh, if we're talking about the essential elements, the sine qua non of worship, we might say any number of things. But here in Hebrews, it seems that four stand out among all of the others. First, you need a high priest. If we're going to have worship, we're going to need a priest. Now, let me remind you, all right, we're, we're not talking about uh, something that's 4,000 years old or 2,000 years old. We're talking about right now. We're talking about what it means to worship as a follower of Jesus Christ in 2020. You need a high priest. Secondly, you need a place for this priest uh, to operate. You need a, a tent, is what he says here, a temple. You'll remember in the Old Testament, as the Jews were given the law, they were uh, carrying around with them throughout their sojourn in the desert, and later, until Solomon was able to build the temple, they carried around a tent. We called it the tabernacle. It was a movable temple of sorts. It's where we offered sacrifices. It's where we offered gifts. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's where the holiness of God resided there over in the Holy of Holies, in the presence of the nation. We needed a high priest. We needed a tent or temple. We needed sacrifices. We needed sacrifice. That's element number three. You're going to sin. Your sins, in response, must then offer a sacrifice. Finally, we needed a covenant. A covenant. This priest isn't just operating willy-nilly. This priest is mediating a covenant. And these are the four things that we found 
over and over again in the book of Hebrews, which are essential elements to worship. Now, here's what happens in these first seven verses of Hebrews chapter 8. We're told that what we have in Jesus in regard to these four different elements of worship is better than what we ever have had before. Because what we had before didn't actually work. And what we have in Christ fulfills all of the necessary requirements for worship. So uh, take a look again at what's happening here in the first seven verses. First, we're told Jesus is better as high priest than any priest who's come before. And you might have seen that in verses 1 and 4. Now, the point of what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. No other high priest in history has been given such a seat of honor. No high priest in history had achieved what Jesus had achieved. None had earned that right, the glorious authority granted to him by what he was able to do as high priest. Uh, verse 4, now if he, this is the high priest were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Where is our high priest? Our high priest is in heaven. Not offering gifts and sacrifices, as we'll get to in chapters 9 and 10, he offers one sacrifice for all time. He's a better priest. And that's one of the arguments that he's making here in the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 8. Secondly, we get a better tent or temple. A better tent or temple. The earthly tent and temple is just a shadow of the better heavenly counterpart. Take a look at verse 2. He is a minister in the holy places in the true tent. The true one, the real one, the heavenly one. That the Lord set up, not by man. Now, if we had the time, we would go back to the Old Testament and see all of the stipulations that were necessitated for the nation of Israel to build the tabernacle and to build the temple. You remember that there were all sorts of rules and regulations for how that was to lay out, and they followed those explicitly, but it was still man-made. It was still made by human hands. It wasn't the true thing. In heaven, there is a temple, and it's made by the hands of God. Right? Thirdly, we find that in Jesus Christ, we have a sacrifice that is better than all the uh, accumulated blood of dead animals that we had throughout the Old Testament. Uh, take a look at, at verse uh, 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, plural. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. He does have something to offer. One thing to offer. Not sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, but one for all time. Let me tell you, this is where we're driving at in chapters 9 and 10. The bulk of chapter 9 and the front half of chapter 10 deals with this, this idea that we need a better sacrifice. And in many ways, that's the high point of the entirety of the book. But what we have here in chapter 8 is this, and this is the fourth element that we find here in the first opening verses of 8. We need a better covenant. The covenant that's offered through Jesus is far superior to the covenant that we had before. So in verses 6 and 7 we find, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent as the covenant that he mediates is better. It's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, and the implication is it was flawed, it had faults, we wouldn't have needed a second one. Now, last chapter we talk about priests. Jesus is the great high priest. He comes from the order of Melchizedek. That's better than all the Aaronic priests. 
This week we're really talking about a covenant. As he slows down our author from time to time to talk about each one of these elements of worship, we've talked about how Jesus is the better priest, or the better mediator. Well, here in chapter 8 we're talking about Jesus mediates a better covenant. And he does something really interesting uh, here starting in verse 8. He quotes uh, three full verses from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah, the great Old Testament prophet who was around as the people were led into Babylonian exile. Here we have uh, uh, half the chapter, more than half the chapter is quoting from the Old Testament. If you're writing a paper in class, and we have a number of students in here, and you turn in the paper and half of it is just quoting another source, right? That's a bad thing. <laughs> but our author here in Hebrews chapter 8, this is a good thing. He wants you to know directly from the source material what that covenant has to say. Before we get there, it's important for us to review just, just for a moment. You remember a year and a half ago, I told you I wanted to preach through Hebrews. And that instead of starting in Hebrews, we started in Deuteronomy. And we spent the better part of a year working our way through Moses' book, which we call Deuteronomy. And we learned an awful lot about the covenant that was extended through Moses, the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, about the law that came through Moses. And you remember how it worked. God comes down on Sinai. He imparts the law to Moses. Moses communicates the law to the people. If you will obey the Lord your God, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. That's how the law works. Now, we're going to talk a little bit here about how the new covenant compares and contrasts against the old covenant. Don't think for a moment that the old covenant was bad. The Mosaic Covenant was a good covenant. It revealed God's character. There's a lot that we can learn about who God is by examining the law. The point that our author is making is simply that the law couldn't do everything we needed it to do. Uh, if you have your uh, piece of notes uh, there, a, a pen or a pencil, go ahead and write these things down. I, I want you to see the difference here as we draw these contrasts between the Old Covenant and the New historically, as we've talked about the virtues of the law, we've talked about the law being able to achieve three different things. Three things, right? Uh, number one, the law showed us righteousness. Like a mirror. It showed us what holiness was and how God was holy and how we decidedly are not, right? That's a great virtue of the law. It, it does an incredible job of telling us who we aren't and who he is. Secondly, the law helped the Israelite society. When governed well, it inhibited lawlessness. It restrained evil. There were consequences for disobeying the law, and the fear of those consequences kept the Israelites in line. Not all the time, but sometimes. Thirdly, the law helped the faithful to know how to live so as to please the Lord their God. It gave them some parameters for what it meant to live in a way that God wanted us to live. And those were all really good things. But it never changed anyone. It didn't actually change you. And what's more, it never promised to. That wasn't the point. Moses never told you that the law that he mediated would alter the very nature of your spiritual DNA. It was external to you. Obey and be blessed. Disobey and be cursed. 
But if there is one defining characteristic of the new covenant, it's this. It changes you from the inside out. Its work is primarily internal. That manifests itself then in external obedience. So the law isn't bad, and I don't want you to get the uh, sense as we compare and contrast the new covenant and the old that the old covenant was a terrible thing. The, the law was a wonderful thing. It revealed to us holiness. What an incredible gift for God to tell us, this is what I regard as central to my character. We were just too weak. And, and the covenant too ineffectual to actually get us to holiness. Not so with the new covenant. So let's go ahead and take a look at what he says here in quoting Jeremiah 31. This is verses 31 through 34, uh, starting in verse 8, right? We need four essential elements to worship. Uh, we need a priest. We need a sacrifice. We need a tent. We need a covenant. Here's the covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Uh, you remember by the days of Jeremiah, the nation of Israel had been split into two parts. Uh, the ten tribes in the north had broken off on their own, the two tribes in the south. And in fact, by this time, the ten tribes in the north have been carried away. We haven't seen them again. But I'm going to establish a covenant with Israel and Judah, the whole of the chosen people there in the Old Testament, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. That's the Mosaic Covenant. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Do you see those promises accumulating here for the new covenant? Right? I'm going to take what I value, what is holiness, what is righteousness, and I'm going to put it internal to their hearts and minds. And this is going to bond us closer together there, right? The new covenant is an internal covenant. The new covenant draws us closer to God. And, and as a consequence of those realities, we find here in verse 11 how things change. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Uh, knowing here isn't simply knowledge. Knowing is probably used in the sense of covenantal obedience here. I, I don't have to tell you how to live because you know how to live internal here, and the Spirit is changing you from the inside out, not just revealing holiness to you, but manifesting holiness through you as this new creation. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's an important theme. You're going to find that almost exact same phrasing, not only in 9, but explicitly in chapter 10. And then he says here, and speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Not bad, he doesn't call it bad, but he calls it obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Barnabas calls the old covenant old 
ineffectual and functionally obsolete. And then he quotes a large chunk out of Jeremiah 31. This is the, the first passage really in Scripture there in the Old Testament that details the, the vast sum of promises contained within the New Covenant. In contrast to the Mosaic Covenant, the New Covenant actually changes believers. It makes you a new thing. It doesn't just show you what holiness is like. It makes you holy from the inside. It functionally equips you for obedience. And you can see how Jesus, who mediates this covenant, is now spanning the gap. If in all our earthly instruments we could not worship God in the way that he required, here comes Jesus, the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, this mediator from the heavenly realm, to give us a, a high priest and a sacrifice and a covenant that actually changes us. The Mosaic Covenant never actually, internally, made you worthy to stand before a holy God and worship. The New Covenant is transformative, making you acceptable to stand in the presence of a holy God in the heavenly tent to worship him there. Jesus is not only redeeming these earthly things, he's drawing us, the faithful, into the place where we can be by his righteousness. So, uh, the new era to come, and this is how one Old Testament scholar puts it, the new era to come would be highlighted by the inauguration of a new covenant. And it would differ from the old covenant, not in its demands, but in its effectiveness. The, the Mosaic law demanded allegiance to the Lord, demonstrated through obedience, but it had no power in and of itself to make the people obey. But this time, God's law, rather than being recorded on stone tablets, would be inscribed on the hearts and the minds of the people. And the point of that metaphor is that the people would have an inherent capacity and desire to obey God's demands. There would be no more need for exhortations to know the Lord, for the people would automatically know him as they experience the forgiveness of sins. This is exactly how Ezekiel uses that term in Ezekiel 36. It is the gift of the divine spirit who purifies the people from sin and supernaturally prompts them to live in obedience. If we're going to summarize uh, all that we've said here about the New Covenant, it would be this. The New Covenant gives the Spirit of God to equip the people of God to live in step with the heart of God. The New Covenant gives the Spirit of God to the people of God to equip them to live in step with the heart of God. And this goes back to our big idea. In the person of Jesus Christ, we have been given all that we need to worship God as we have been called to worship him. Now, time out. Important note here. Someone who has spent any amount of time reading their Bibles is going to ask at this moment, okay, uh, uh, wait, Jeremiah 31. That's a great passage, but that's in the Old Testament. And isn't that new covenant written to the Jewish people? In fact, explicitly, it says that it's for Judah and Israel. What do we do with the fact that the new covenant is mentioned so explicitly as relating to the church in the New Testament? 
I mean, isn't this an Old Testament promise for the Jewish people, the ethnic Jews, the chosen people of God there in the Old Testament? Uh, how do we understand its relationship to us now, 2020? Let me give you three options. Three options for the way that people have interpreted the relationship of the new covenant to us as the church even though it was made in the Old Testament and directed explicitly to the Jewish people. Option number one. Option number one. Maybe there are two new covenants, one for Israel and one for the church. Now, that was a really popular option among certain dispensationalists in the early part of the 20th century. There are actually two new covenants. The new covenant that is talked about in Jeremiah 31 is different from the new covenant talked about in 1 Corinthians 11, a passage that I know you're familiar with because in verses 21, 23, 25, we find that when we take communion, we read this passage, right? Here's the new covenant in my blood, right? Well, he must be talking about two different new covenants one for the Jewish people and one for the people of faith in the New Testament, the church. Uh, the problem is, there's an awful lot said about the New Covenant in the New Testament, and uh, Romans and Galatians, and certainly here in the book of Hebrews, and in parts of First and Second Corinthians, and, well, really, the New Testament speaks an awful lot about the New Covenant, and at no point do these masterful theologians draw a distinction, Paul, Peter, John, our good friend Barnabas here in Hebrews, wink, wink, <laughs> between two separate new covenants. And for the great volume of which they speak about the new covenant, you would think if there was two of them, that maybe that would have come up. Specifically in passages like Romans chapters 9 through 11, which talks about the relationship between the church and the Jewish people. That there are two distinct peoples of God drawn together in one purpose plan. But we don't find that distinction. And that bothers me. I, I have a hard time believing. I don't think it's inappropriate. But I have a hard time believing that there are two new covenants. Second option, and this is uh, really popular in many reform circles, maybe the church has replaced Israel as the recipient of the new covenant. Uh, maybe uh, the covenant was originally made to Israel and God said, you know what, I'm done with them altogether. I have a big problem with Israel, and you know what we're going to do? We're just going to, I'm going to fulfill all those promises to the church. The church is the new Israel. Forget those guys. I got a problem with that. Go ahead and turn back to Romans chapter 11. And something that we have said repeatedly here at Rocky Mount Bible Church, we believe that the promises that were made to Israel will be fulfilled to Israel. That it is a violation of the character of God for him to make a promise to someone and not fulfill that promise. That it would be contradictory to his nature to renege on a promise. Uh, and if we had more time, we would spend more time here, but in uh, Romans chapter 11, verses, uh, starting in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be aware of this mystery, Paul says, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Two distinct groups of people here. The nation of Israel, ethnic Israel, right, and uh, the Gentiles. 
And in this way, uh, I think this is a uh, future tense verb here, in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Does that remind you of a covenant that we've read about here recently? As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, we're in Hebrews 8, we're not in Romans chapter 11, but that passage, if we were able to spend more time there, convinces me thoroughly, from my head to my toes, that the promises that God has made to Israel, God will fulfill to Israel ethnic Israel are they living in a way which is contradictory to the gospel of Jesus Christ today many of them are but there is coming a day and it may not be all that far away in which God the Father will renew a right spirit within ethnic Israel drawing them back to him so how does that relate to us though because obviously there are a number of passages explicitly in the New Testament which talk about how important it is for us to understand that we're living under the auspices and blessings of the New Covenant. I want you to imagine a tunnel. Uh, when we would go see my folks that lived in Ohio, uh, this is one of my favorite things, right? Uh, is it uh, Northern Virginia or Southern West Virginia hit those tunnels? Northern Virginia. Here we go, we hit these two tunnels. And they're uh, several hundred meters long, each one of these tunnels. You're driving through the tunnels, and you're walking through, driving through the base of the mountain, which is over top of you. And at the very beginning of one of those tunnels, the really long one, you can't see the end of it. But the closer and closer you get, it, it starts off as a small dot of light, and it gets a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. But from your vantage point, sitting in the car, driving down the tunnel, you can only see a small circular realization of the world outside of the tunnel. You can see that particular amount. You can see cars exiting and entering the tunnel. You can see the little uh, shack there where you throw in your coins and you pay your ungodly amount of fees for whatever state it is that you're going through this tunnel, right? Uh, but, but that's your perspective, and that perspective is reality. But it's not the total sum of everything that's happening outside of the mountain. When the prophets in the Old Testament are able to look through to the future and see what God will do in the New Covenant, they have that kind of vision and it is actual, and it is real, and it is literal, and it is explicit. Jeremiah says, I am making a covenant from the Lord. I am making a covenant with Israel and with Judah. And I know, because I can see that particular range of this promise, of this covenant, I can see it outside the tunnel in the future in the history of God. But what he can't see is everything else happening outside. You know, when you emerge through the tunnel, the entire world opens up to you, the atmosphere and everything beyond. And my best reckoning of what we have happening in Jeremiah 31, as it relates here to Hebrews chapter 8, is this. That when Jeremiah says, these promises are made with Judah and Israel, he means literally to Judah and to Israel, the ethnic Jewish people, the chosen people of God but that there was a certain aspect of the new covenant that the prophet in his day could not see. 
that in the arrival of Jesus Christ was revealed to the authors of the New Testament, to Paul and to the author of Hebrews as well. That this new covenant concerns them explicitly and literally, but its many blessings are also unfolded to us living here in the age of the church. God keeps his promises. In the person of Jesus, we have been given all that we need to worship God. All that we need. Now, uh, what does this say? What's the theology of a passage like this one? Uh, I just want to flesh out just for a moment what we've said all along here. In the person of Jesus, we have everything we need to worship God. In Jesus, we have a high priest. That was the first element. We needed a high priest. What do we have in him? The argument against all the Aaronic priests was that even the best ones of them had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. Jesus, as the high priest, is sinless. In Jesus, we have a high priest who is perfect, who can mediate the better covenant because he doesn't need any external apparatus to appease the wrath of God. In his person, he has done so. Secondly, Jesus doesn't just give us access to the temple of God. You'll remember in Hebrews chapter 4, we saw that because of his sacrifice and the righteousness imputed to us, we can stand boldly before the throne of grace. He does something even more clever in John chapter 2 there. You can ask Jason about it. John's his favorite book. Jesus says, in three days, this temple will be torn down and raised back up. And the Pharisees are bewildered by such a promise. What do you mean? It took generations to build this temple. But what he does is he he delocalizes the temple as a place and identifies himself as the temple. What is the temple? Primarily, what is the temple? It is the place or the point where we go to meet God. How is Jesus better as a mediator of a new covenant? He is better because he is the place and the point where we go to meet God. Jesus brings us to God through his own person. So it's less about a place and more about himself. Thirdly, we need a sacrifice. We need a sacrifice. Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice. This priest will place himself upon the altar, body and blood shed for our sins. And this draws at the heart of the new covenant. When in 1 Corinthians 11, we take these elements, he says, this is the new covenant in my what? In my blood. This is a priest who draws us into covenant by the sacrifice that he makes. And every time we take those elements, we are reminded thoroughly and undeniably that he is better in every way. Now, how do you apply a a passage like that one? It's hard. So much of applying a passage like this one has to deal with your heart. Uh, It would be nice to say of a passage like this one, our primary application is something like this. Enjoy having your lid absolutely blown off in wonder 
at what Jesus Christ, by his nature and his work, has achieved on behalf of his chosen people. Let me encourage you, in a very small and simple way, having the opportunity to read Jude this week. And if you don't read Jude very often, Jude's a great one to read. Go ahead and turn over to Jude. Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude. It's one chapter. I love this. Starting in verse 17, Jude, verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, in this call to perseverance, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. There is something of an imperatible force in those words, isn't there? Keep yourselves in the love of Christ. This is what we learn in those verses about what mature believers really look like. They are not only kept in love, they are kept in love and expectation. The new covenant has been inaugurated but it has not yet been fully consummated. It has not been brought about yet in its fullest form. But there is coming a day, the hour which we do not know, when Christ will come again and will draw the faithful to him. And we will get to worship him in new and unprecedented ways because he has given us everything we need to worship God in the way that he requires. He's held nothing back. Do you long for that day? Father, for the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension, and the mediating work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you. We thank you for loving us so thoroughly and equipping us so profoundly that we might worship you just as you require. You have given us everything we need by the work of your Son, who is the Savior. Amen.